Greetings to everyone listening, and thank you for tuning into another episode of the God Speak podcast, where we examine the history and characteristics of the unseen realm. We spent the last few episodes talking about mainstream religions, and since that's what most people used to make sense of the supernatural, we've covered Judaism and Christianity, and Islam is a predictable next choice, so that's what we'll be looking at today. As per the usual disclaimer, Godspeak.com still has no political, religious, or commercial affiliations and is completely managed by myself, although anyone is free to make donations by way of my sister site, Greekspeak.com. So, I hope you enjoy the upcoming conversation, and thanks again for listening. So... Greek. Um, normally I'd ask how you're doing, but I suspect that banal questions will only entice banal answers, but I hope you've been doing well. Yes, thank you. So I think the proper starting point when talking about Muslims is to talk about their main predecessors, the Nabataeans, who were at their height during Josephus's time. He described them as being descended from Nebaioth, the eldest son of Ishmael, and they appear to have been a mercantile nation who influenced most of the Near East and parts of Europe as well, like Italy. From the information you've come across, what do you know about the Nabataeans? Very sparse. I, I uh, haven't looked into what I call uh, Arabic and, uh, and Eastern Orientalism. You know, for example, I haven't really read the Quran in 15 years or studied any of that specifically. Um, but the, the, it is a popular culture. If you, you do come across them. Uh, I would say there were more of the, uh, if you go outside of what's called the Persian realm, uh, 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 they would probably be one of the more developed culturally and traditional societies of the time. Also being that uh, they would keep their heritage intact. So they would, you know, tout a lineage from Abraham and also have adherences to uh, to the kin of such. Yeah, I found some similar things. Um, So just to give some additional context, you have this vast desert area in the Middle East thanks to the Syrian desert and the Nafut desert, which makes traveling difficult, and so the Nabataeans were the ones who bridged that gap by settling outside most of the major cities of the Middle East and building up a trade network, and so kingdoms would rise and fall, but the Nabataeans just got more and more wealthy by being on the sidelines and eventually gained some political power based on the developments in certain regions. For example, when Damascus was having political problems in 85 BC, they put a Nabataean governor in charge to rule the city. Um, They also had a lot of interactions with Judea and the Hasmoneans, and later on Herod the Great, before they finally got absorbed into the Roman Empire. I don't know if you know much about those interactions. Somewhat. Those would be what I consider the more traditional movers and shakers of that period. Indeed. um, They did have quite a lot of influence on... um, the Hasmonean Revolution, um, they supported them against the Seleucids and then had some issues with Herod, which contributed quite a lot to Pompey invading Ju- Judea later on. Mm-hmm. So one of the reasons I wanted to mention the Nabataeans is because when you go back and examine how most of the powerful traditions today got started, you'll find that their origins are very different from what their current followers proclaim. So Christianity doesn't take its root from the Christ. Judaism is actually rabbinic Judaism, and Islam also has some question marks. So I I want us to look at one of those. 
Muslims will tell you that Muhammad came from Mecca, which is in Southern Arabia. But when Middle Eastern construction companies want to dig to put up a building, the government requires that someone from the Ministry of Antiquities is always present because they might run into an ancient site, which will get exposed during the digging. And so in Mecca, developers are digging all the time to put up skyscrapers and hotels, but they aren't finding any ruins of ancient cities. And in fact, there's no archaeological record in Mecca that predates 800 AD, even though Muhammad's birthplace was said to be called the mother of all cities in the Quran. Um, have you heard about this aberration in Mecca's sure. original origins? Sure. It's it's kind of enigmatic, just like uh, um, if you've heard any other Greek speak or God speak, there's not much difference between these religions. There there are uh, cultural mechanisms of political control. They also control every aspect of the society, uh, you know, the morality and the finance and all that. So once you understand, if you fast forward, like you, if you, uh, you said, if you ask any Muslims, um, what they consider to be Islam is less than 150 years old. The same with Christians or Judean to some extent, you can go back to the 1500s. But um, when we start discussing the origin of these cultures, it's basically another world of, of uh, days that have gone by and has been and uh, completely different ideologies and narratives uh, spoken and considered by the people that supposedly subscribe to those faiths. I did want to quote from an actual source regarding the Mecca issue. So Ibn yes, yes. I, and just to answer, just a preface and an answer, and that's very dubious and somewhat enigmatic and uh, very similar to the same way that if they dig at the current, uh, current Temple Mount in Jerusalem, they're not going to find any relics because that's not the Temple Mount. I'm not saying that uh, Mecca or Medina or all these other places didn't exist. They do exist geographically, but uh, what people acclaim uh, – for it to be is not just like, uh, for example, just to bounce around a little bit, the recent discoveries uh, of um, oh, I forgot his name, uh, who uncovered the real Sodom and Gomorrah east of the Jordan River versus the one that that Hyatt Moron uh, said was down in the southern part, right? Uh, so anyone could look at uh, Collins, I believe, Dr. Stephen Collins, I think is his name. They uncovered the real location of Sodom and Gomorrah, which is what far no more north than traditionally believed. And it doesn't want to be looked at because it actually has proof. So, again, even with this conversation, if we start to bring up proofs, uh, we're going to find um, a very stark contrast between what people think it is and what it actually can be found out about it. Yes, indeed. Yeah, anybody can look up Stephen Collins, what he's done on Sodom and Gomorrah. There's quite a lot of YouTube videos on that. So just to quote from an actual source, um, Ibn Hisham is the one who edited the official biography of Muhammad, and he wrote about Mecca having fields and trees and water. Um, Al-Bukhari is one of the most prominent 9th century scholars. He wrote that Meccan prisoners could be seen eating grapes. But the strange thing, of course, is that Mecca is surrounded by rocks and desert, averages less than 10 centimeters of rain per year, so hardly any vegetation grows there. And anyone can look at the ancient record of trees and plants by testing the spores in the soil. And it's already been revealed that Mecca had no trees. But more importantly, Mecca is absent from ancient maps of Arabia that predate Islam, which is odd given that it's supposed to be a mer merchant city. But it's interesting how these facts are actually known by Islamists and scholars, but they've just ignored them for either convenience or fear of reprisal. I had come across some information that pointed to Petra, um, the city in Jordan, 
There was a book written by Thomas Artsruni. He's an Armenian historian from the 9th century. And if you quote from his book on page 165, he said, At the time, there were some despotic brothers in the region of Arabia Petra, which is now called Mecca. Um, and then additionally, Ibn Hisham also says that one of Islam's first converts was a man from Mecca who, after he converted, told his wife to go cleanse himself herself near the temple of Dushara, which is located in Petra. Um, so there's some evidence that points to that as well, and I think there's a documentary that's been put out about that. Sure, and around that time, uh, first, uh, first millennia, uh, there would have been a massive uh, exodus of anything re resembling Judaic culture or tradition. I think by that time there was already the major division, and I think it was occupied. Uh, that whole entire area of Judea was already occupied. Whether it was the Eastern Orthodox uh, movement and the Ottoman movement, you know, mm -hmm. at the time, uh, I think the Ro that's when the division with the Rome. Oh, actually, we'll well into it. I want to uh, throw something in. I know around the sixth uh, century mid-6th century, I think, there was a worldwide catastrophe. I think it was volcanic and there was earthquakes uh, that subsumed most of normal life into a nightmarish, uh, hellish uh, condition on this planet, you know, weather-wise, climate-wise, climate, climate atmospheric-wise, uh, commerce and everything was affected. Um, so you have a worldwide calamity happening roughly 100 years before supposed Islam emerged. So look at that. Look, you, you must keep that political and geological, you know, condition in in uh, in sight as well. Yes, I've um, read a bit about that as well. Because I mean, how did these Arabian um, sort of ragtag group just suddenly emerge and conquer huge areas unless the politics there had been disrupted by some event? Right. It was a Mad Max scenario for about uh, a century at that time. Mad Max meaning the destruction of uh, formal society, conventional society. Correct. So I also want to talk about, you know, the gods themselves and that aspect of the religion as it pertains to the Nabataean ones and also the, the God of Islam. You've remarked in past episodes about how Allah is not a proper name, it's just a generic title meaning the God. What are the implications of that? because it seems to be a reoccurring theme that names of deities are removed from the major religions, except maybe Hinduism. That isn't really a religion. Well, it is a religion, Hindu. Well, it's a, it, Hinduism is so broad with uh, two million possible gods, right? And all that. It's more of a naturalism like the ancient religion of Bon, let's say, pre-Buddhist, uh, or looking a lot of the Native American uh, observances. But uh, I would suggest that it's El Allah. Al, al means the Allah, like you see in the book of Daniel. It's sort of like an Aramaic, right? Like you won't see Yahweh or Elohim really in uh, Daniel. It's always El Allah or the ancient ones, the ancient one, which is sort of a tradition that you find in the Orient about referring to high deities. When you do see names eliminated, like, for example, in the parlance of the King James and all the modern Bibles, um, that means that that writing or text has been fully subsumed as a political tool. Because um, when you include the name, like what's in a name, well, there's a lot of power in it. If you, uh, let's say, 
I don't like to use these examples, but because of people's culture, they can see it. If you watch a movie on uh, someone casting a spell or revoking a demon, they must be very precise about the name, right? And this is what's always put in front of you in Hollywood and in media. But they also, but people aren't so smart to say, well, uh, what about on the light side? Should we know the name, right? And they just accept some loose adjective as a name, and it's not. So when you see lack of specifics, uh, especially if you watch mainstream media, there's never, you know, whenever they state something as a fact, there's no, nothing to back it up, and there's never any specifics. So, uh, and you could even take that even further if you regarding what we just brought up in terms of Mecca, right? It, it's so obscure. Um, but I would, I would suggest that it's al Allah, and, and there are other many phonetically similar gods uh, referring to it as the moon god of a certain uh, group in, in that part of the world. And um, there, there are other deities, supposedly, that sound similar. So, again, there's an enigmatic aspect of it, just like when one argues the name J-E-S-U-S. -S, it means some say it's just the Greek phonetic spelling. Some say it's a transliteration because you know of the of this. Others say it means Zeus, right? So, but the thing that you could say is it's not correct. Indeed, and just to address the moon god aspect, um, it's mm -hmm. it says both in the writings of Ibn Hisham and Al Tabari that Muhammad's grandfather took him to the temple of the god Hubal to be dedicated to him. And it's become popular to now say that Hubal was a moon god or that he's related to the goddess Alat and therefore Allah is a moon god or the male version of Alat. That idea was popularized mainly in 1994 by Robert Morey and his book, The Moon God, Allah in Archaeology of the Middle East. And then different people ran with that notion in mainstream media. But according to the Islamic historian Al-Azakari, the statue of Hubal was actually brought from Mesopotamia, from the city of Hit. Prior to that, it had been in Damascus. Um, and personally, I'm not surprised that we find a Mesopotamian connection to Islam in this way, because it always seems to be with these Semitic religions that there's some linkage back to Mesopotamia. Or, or even less than that. Uh, I think the main linkage, uh, if I were to anchor the, the movement of Islam, it would be uh, a it's a political movement that would organize a group of people through tradition and... Uh, also be as a defense against uh, other movements, geographic movements, like it would be a defense against uh, Christian missionaries. The Judean uh, uh, convention and religion and way of life was not considered a threat at all because it was they were already downtrodden uh, and scattered uh, other than some small, you know, uh, in other words, every any, any place that had more than a thousand people in any uh, village or city or town in, in Arabia, Middle East, all the way to India and parts of Europe had, quote unquote, Jews or Judeans living there already. Right. But them to form a group to impose tradition and all that would have never happened. The only thing that uh, was around other than the far oriental philosophies and Hinduism and all that that could pose a, a controlling, um, let's say an overarching controlling uh, effect on the culture would be Christianity and the spread of that, right? So if you're going to develop a political system uh, that, that includes religion, tradition, and all these other things, it would have to be very stark, very plain and simple, 
for people to understand, it would have to be um, stoic, meaning you are who you relate with, right? Um, actually, that's not what stoic means, but that's part of their edicts, uh, which I agree with, by the way. So that's why you find in Islam, for example, you know, you you should associate with your own people, and if you don't, they're not viewed as equals, and they should be uh, not considered equal, let's say, I'm paraphrasing here, from the actual what could be found in the tradition, uh, until they convert to Islam, you see. So you are who you uh, associate with. So it actually provided a defense against the movement, uh, the spread of Christianity, which f from Judean scholars and leaders at the time, again, they were downtrodden, had viewed it as being an ab abominable thing uh, for mankind and was very easy to convince people of that region of the same. So we needed some kind of, let's say, uniform code of tradition or religion to to block that and Islam was perfect for that. Yeah, there's been quite a lot of things written about the messianic streak that the Arabs had and how that sort of came into uh, interaction with the, the Jews or at least the Jewish sects that exist and certainly we'll look at that. But Yeah, but all cultures have that. Even the Native Americans have a messianic streak. It may not necessarily be the same messiah, but a superhuman or someone uh, someone that's going to come and first mop up, clean up society, and then rule it uh, righteously. Indeed. But if we look at the, you know, focus a bit on Muhammad, this founder figure, I found that it's, it's legitimate to say that Muhammad was an actual historical figure, despite people's occasional attempts to not deny that. Um, I believe... To some, but to some degree. Yeah, I believe there's a Greek... I'll tell you personally, I'm, I'm sitting on the fence. What is he only mentioned four or five times in the Quran? It's just the name. I think it's a derivation of something else, but, but that's where I left off with it. Because it, for me, the, the actual um, virility of the, of the whole thing is, is a, it's, a it's purely a political movement, which is completely understood. Yes. So you don't need, you don't need a real person to do that but if, if he seems to exist that's fine but i would suggest he has nothing to do with any of it um uh maybe posthumously i have seen and i'm trying to find it but i have seen that there was this figure that actually had a different name not muhammad that the muhammad name came after the fact but in either case there are there is a greek text written during the arab invasion mm -hmm. of syria around 633 a.d that mentions quote a false prophet has appeared among the Saracens. The Saracens was the name for the Arabs at the time. So there was some kind of figure that was leading something. Whether his name was Muhammad or something else is can be disputed. Um, I'm going to see if I can find the name as we progress. But in terms of starting points, at least the story goes that this figure, we'll call him Muhammad, was in a cave in 610 AD. An angel visits him, uh, squeezes him so that he can't move and tells him to recite what he was told about Islam after which he becomes suicidal and, and, the, and thinks that he's being possessed, but eventually he obeys and then spends the next 12 years trying to convert the people in his hometown by being mostly peaceful but an inefficient religious leader and changing his tactics after that when he realized stuff wasn't working. There's a lot more that can be said, but you know, what have you seen about this figure, at least in your studies about his origins? I had a hard uh, problem, uh, well, a hard issue with understanding that Anything that could be salvaged from that time period did not have vowels in the text. The vowels are put in later. 
So is it Mahmud, Mahmud, Mahmud? Yes, I've seen this also. Yeah. So the M, the Mahmud, Mahmud, Mahmud sound can be attached to many things and uh, should be put to the side uh, and the meat and look at the meat of the text. Uh, what is it conveying, and and is it conveying enough that you can build a religion on it? And those that have influenced it and used the text, right? Uh, because many don't really use the Quran; they just talk about the philosophy and, and what Muhammad said, right? Later on, that's why, for example, if you go back, you, you won't find any evidence of Islam until eight nine hundred. There's no coinage. There's no writings. There's no, uh, you know, there's no evidence of it, right? Uh, so it's po most of it is posthumous. Um, and I, by the way, personally, my personal view on it is I'm all for it. Anything that could stop, uh, you know, the law, the stuff that the Christians are putting out in general is a good thing. In other words, to balance it, right? Um, because it, it, you know, uh, what Christians say, they have no law and they say, you know, love your neighbor, but they never define love. So that's why you have all this. They just, uh, it just helps people, uh, continue along what they're good at doing, which is basically kill each other. So uh, I would suggest that getting hung up on the Mahmoud, Muhammad, Mahad, Mahmad aspect of it, um, for me and my studies was, was very, very minimal. For example, if you eliminated all of the names of the prophets in the Bible and just read what was said prophetically, critically, and uh, what was supposed to be, you know, you know, verbally disposed to the people, you'll get more out of it than getting hung up on whether it was Isaiah or Jeremiah or, right, you see. Indeed. To piggyback just off what you mentioned about the, the lack of vowels, so the earliest Quran really only has consonants, but even then, there's not even any diacritical marks, which means that the consonants can be read in any number of ways. Right, um, that's what very I stated. It could be, it could be a mixture of, um, in other words, of another cognate. Especially if it had influence from, let's say, Judaic authors, they would be bringing their cognate and you know their words. It's very easy to just like in English, you have, you have words uh, that are from other languages, like chandelier, right? That's French, and whatever. Medical terms are Greek. So to me, the, the actual individual. The actual, even the term jinn, for example, to jinn is not as important as the, what they do in their description, right? And what traditions and thing, what effect is it going to have if, if it's uh, adhered to? In other words, the, if the text is subscribed to as the basis of a religion or a way of life or tradition, ultimately, we know that no one in any religion follows what's in the text pretty much. But if they were to, what, would, what structure cultural structure would emerge from that. That's what my main interest was. Yeah, I mean, as far as the Christian or possible Christian derivations, there was a German scholar, Christoph Lux Luxenberg, although that's a pseudonym, but he wrote in 2007 that parts of the Quran seemed to be derived from pre-existing Christian Aramaic texts that were misinterpreted by later scholars. So even like, for example, the virgins in paradise who are supposedly waiting Islamic martyrs is actually sh should be rendered as white raisins, which is very anticlimactic. Well, this song, a lot of part, many parts of it, especially the prophetic parts, 
uh, and the criticism of society reads like the Song of Songs or parts of the Psalms or Lamentations, you know. I mean, it's very simple to 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 see the uh, the origin based on the, uh, the the ideology of the writer, the author, you know. And again, there is no uh, you're going to be hard pressed to find anything prior to the year 900, you know, penned or otherwise, right? So we're talking about a pretty long stretch between the origin and so forth. It's my my whole point on it was uh, if it came if Islam were supposedly originated around that time, and we know that all religions that are known as religions now, because by the way, the real truth of anything that's supposed to be held or known in the religion is still secret. Even if you read Genesis, that is a, in the Bible, that is just a recap that Moses gave in the Pentateuch to Israel after Egypt. There's very partly, very little information about, you know, the creation or early man there. So it's still secret, right? So you have all of these things that are mentioned in the Quran are, again, just kind of glossed over. It's the commentaries and the dictates there are, uh, again, uh, you know how to run a society. It, they, these uh, we don't have overtly any knowledge uh, regarding technical knowledge, true, you know, uh, technical or let's say detailed origin information that is public at all. So I just want to throw that in there. So if you're putting together a text like the Quran or the the Bible or anything like that, it's going to be an overview. Now, it's 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 also known actually there there it's very well known that there is technical information and detailed information about our origin uh, that does exist it's just never been made public so you have to keep that in mind when you're looking at the veracity of a document you know how important a document is yes that's correct and we will be looking a little bit at some of the other um islamic documents just to conclude on the muhammad bit and and to give some sort of a wrap up on his profile so he starts off by preaching in Mecca, could be Petra, makes about 70 converts in 12 years, which is kind of bad, averages out to about two people a month, gets frustrated at the lack of progress, becomes confrontational with the local population. Once his uncle dies, who's taking care of him, the locals chase him out of town for disturbing the peace, so he flees to Medina, where half the population are Jews and they let him in. He starts pressuring the Jews into making political concessions towards him and his followers, Eventually, by the they, way, sounds like sounds like uh, Joe was it Joseph Smith of of Mormonism. But anyway, I just had to throw <laughs> that in there. I was laughing while you're reading all that. But go ahead. Yeah, I'm not surprised that these things repeat themselves. Um, but so yeah, they attack. Even though the Jews let them in, they attack the smallest or the weakest Jewish tribe, the Banu Kanuka, and drive them out of town. The same happens to the second tribe, the Banu Al Nadir, and then the third tribe as well, the Banu Kureza, are destroyed and enslaved. Muhammad then goes on to conduct about 66 raids and battles as a military leader. Within five years of entering Medina, he's killed or enslaved all the Jews, and within five years of his death, his armies have killed off most other religions in Arabia. So yeah, I mean, the notion of Islam opposing Christianity, you know, certainly we'll get into that, but from the point of view of this Muhammad figure, um, it seems like he was more about being manipulated by a spirit and then becoming a warlord to advance this cause to compete, I think, with the Jews and the Christians who were dominant in Arabia, at least in the beginning. That's how it seems. I would say it's less uh, competition than more than um, uh, making a geographical stake and establishing a geographical territory. And it would have been done 
all of this attributed posthumously. Right. And of course, it makes sense that after, you know, about uh, 30% of the world's population has died from famine and hunger, it's a good time to attack, right? I, I don't see any of this as being noble uh, on any account. I mean, look, even if you read the book of Exodus, you know, uh, you know, if you're the highest God, uh, why would you play around with the Pharaoh and play around with this and that? I don't think any of it is noble. It just is. That's just my, you know, how I view it. Um, we're in a pretty bad spot as humans. So, in other words, you're, you're not going to find anything that, uh, no matter what text you look at that supposedly teaches and preaches and demonstrates higher morality, you'll be hard to find it in the text. It's just a matter of if you uh, have allegiance to me, you do this, right? Almost like just do as I say, not as I do. So it, it comes very natural. I mean, what people ultimately want to do uh, when you look at uh, history in terms of 50 and 100 year uh, pieces at a time is what they're good at. And guess what that is? Killing each other. Right? Anyway, that was maybe a little general comment thrown in just to remind the listeners that they're not going to hear anything very different if we discuss Islam or anything else because it's actually a political, you know, it's ultimately it's going to reflect all the political machinations and historical machinations that we see. And it all comes down to who you have allegiance to. Yeah, you certainly can't right. separate the, the violence from what the religion is um, defined as at this sure. point. Sure, so from if you were talking about a higher level being uh, in any religion, you wouldn't have a god that would act this way uh, because it's his desire and then have and then say that's a high level of morality. No, like someone recently asked me, you know, who's your god you have allegiance to? And I said, it's Yahweh, the god of war. And they were laughing because I'm not going to mince words, right? He's a god of war, right? So you don't like it? Too bad, right? So that's why I like running into people. Like one guy, you know, he worships Thor. I said, oh, okay, cool. You know, just stick with him. You know, don't start bouncing around, you know. Um, oh, just to wrap up on the Muhammad bit, I did find this. And whoever wants to look into it really has to do it on their own because there's not much information. But it was said that his real name was Kathan ibn Abdullah Lot. Um, and somehow it gets changed to Muhammad later. But yeah. Sure, I just want to again repeat, it doesn't matter. Uh, look, for example, if you look at the Mormons that I consider the Muslims of the North America, because they're, they're almost exactly the same. You know, not exa well, they parallel so much that to see that they're not the Muslims of Northern America means you haven't done any homework at all. So it's, it's just, it doesn't matter who it, who's uh, ahead of it. It's what is the outcome? What kind of a structure does it set up? Uh, Right. What what how are the what is the religious aspect of it? I mean, the stuff that people are told to do regular regularly, even if it's not adherent to the text, which no one does, by the way, um, the social outcome and the political outcome, again, is is important. You know, like uh, I've I've been in the presence of, uh, let's say, uh, Muslim higher ups, let's say. And if you bring up the Quran, they all kind of like, you know. I don't want to talk about that. It has nothing to do with that, right? Just like I've been in the presence of Christian higher-ups, and you bring up the Bible, what we do has nothing to do with that. I've been in the presence of, quote-unquote, Jewish higher-ups, 
you bring up the Torah or the Bible again, well, what we do has nothing to do with that. Do you see my point? So there's many ways to go. We can we can dig in pedantically into historics and texts and all that, and it really has nothing. I mean, look at the government. The government has nothing to do with you know the way it's being run, with what's in their laws. So there's many ways to discuss the topic. And again, just uh, I would say that they're all the same. Mm-hmm. The only reason they're different is because of geography and culture. And that's changing with the Internet and the new world order, which is the new, new, new world order, which is going to fail. And by the way, just to throw this in, all of your religions will not exist in a, a little bit over a decade. None of them will exist anymore. No one will care. No one will mention them or anything. So it's interesting we did God speak around this time. So continue. Yeah, the hope is that it will be a resource that people can turn to, even if, if only later. But just to, um, let's touch on the subject of the Quran a little bit, because I think it's interesting when you look at the Islamic holy books as a whole, um, the Quran is the most well-known, um, but it's really only the size of the New Testament. It's not a comprehensive book like the biblical text is. Something important like the, the procedure for the five daily prayers isn't even mentioned in the Quran. So according to mainstream Islam, you also need the Hadith and the Sirah, which covers the sayings, deeds, and life of Muhammad. There's also the Tafsir, which are the scholarly commentaries on Islam. And if you're a Muslim who ignores those other books and only live by the Quran, then you're called a Quranist, which is actually an apostate uh, category. Did you find it to be difficult at all in your studies about Islam when the canon is so fragmented across these multiple separate books? No, not at all. I was expecting it just like the various sects of Christianity. Like in the Eastern Orthodox Church, you have you have a creed, which is an allegiance to the Eastern Orthodox Church, right? And yes, it over it overtakes. Um, like if you speak to, it overtakes what's in the text or what's considered to be important, whether it's that text or not. If you run into someone who is uh, a devout Eastern Orthodox, I said, how do you know? If someone else is as devout as you are, they said they pull out an icon of the Virgin Mary and make sure, and have them kiss it. If they don't kiss it, they're not devout. And it's like you got to shake your head and do a double face palm and walk away. You can't you can't work with that. You know, and there's nothing to work there. You know, it's kind of like give them a reflective vest and a plastic broom and go. That's what you do on this world. Nothing. You you can't form a higher society with that, right? And that. So when you have that kind of deviation, or it's a new development, right? I mean, go look at the Muslim world, right? If it wasn't for what the the Mohammedan Anglo treaties and all that was done in the 19th century, it, you would it, it would you'd go to the Middle East and it would be like the people um, in the Polynesian islands well, that's still where. Um, uh, banana leaves and go spear fishing, right? But it would be the desert version of that. Like time, time would never. Uh, in other words, if there wasn't an influence in the 19th century, time would not have moved for for 2,000 years. You would go to the Middle East and it would look just like it did 3,000 years ago, and not well kept. So, you know, when we talk about should they be doing this or be doing that. Like when you get captured by ISIS, for example, or Al-Qaeda, you know, the, the, the radical ones, they, the first thing they ask you, you know, if they find out if you're a Muslim, they ask you, how many times did you pray today? 
right? <laughs> and if you didn't pray at least five times, you, they, they shoot you. That's, what, that's their excuse for shooting you, right? I don't know if you've ever met anyone who's captured by one of those groups there, but that's the first thing they always ask. I haven't had the pleasure, but I'll take your word for yeah. it. Yeah, I haven't been either, but I know someone who has. Mm. And that's their excuse for shooting you. You say it's good enough, and it's not in the correct. You know, the whole thing is bizarre. Ultimately, if we look at this in 50-year, 100-year, 200-year swaths of time, people will resort to do what they're good at doing, which is killing each other. So this is just another excuse for killing someone, ultimately. But there is a lot of merit uh, in the Quran itself. If you, you know, I think uh, we had a discussion. It refers to Moses many times, you know, as the lawgiver, you know, indirectly. And uh, legitimizes the prophets and Abraham and all that, too. So, you know, it's kind of like the origin. Who was Christopher Columbus? Well, if we look at anything surviving that is direct evidence of him, he always signed his name in Greek. And if you go to the island of Hios, there's always an argument where who he was and where he was from. There's a very modest house there, and there's a little tiny plaque. No one knows about it. You could find it. This is the birthplace of the man known as Christopher Columbus. Later, he changed his name. But if you could look this up, all of the documents he ever signed was in Greek. Because, of course, he was Spanish or Italian. That's normal, of course, right? You see my point? I'm being facetious. We look at these things the same way. Uh, you know, uh, yes, this is what everyone thinks it is and what we're told about it, but what do we see and what do we hear about it? You know, actually, when we do the research, right? Mm -hmm. It's lies upon lies upon lies. So people can do what they're good at doing, which is kill each other, which, which you know, uh, can be glossed over in many ways. Why or whatever. But once you see a deviation, like why bother writing it down? Why bother starting a religion? Why bother adhering to anything if you're not going to follow it? Because uh, humans have the innate idea, uh, taught and epigenetically somehow, that they need that uh, uh, structure. Right? And they really do. Uh, what happens is if someone were brought up on an island with the Quran or anything, and they read it, they would, it would be a good life to adhere to it, generally. But then you would find other people that were, if you called yourself a Muslim, you would see they're acting radically different. So now you have a choice. Do I act like they do, or do I act like I'm supposed to, or the way I learned? And usually it's the, the first one. I'm going to act like everyone else. I also found that Quran-wise, one of the reasons it's so hard to discern the changes that took place in Islam's history is because of how they look at their literature. So it's interesting, in, in Western scholarly thought, older is better, which is why older biblical manuscripts are given more weight than the recent ones. But in Islam, it's actually the reverse. Newer is considered better because to them that indicates continued divine revelation. So it gets hard to establish what the original material said and the religion ends up being very dualistic because you always have one verse that contradicts another older verse and depending on the situation, you can use any of them. Um, so it's tricky to study. In terms of that. Right, but, but the, the obvious thing there is, let's talk about divine revelation. Well, the gods left. All the higher gods left. It's the lower demons that are here. The, lower de the, the, the higher gods sent the lower demons first. The higher gods came and they said, screw this, I'm out of here. They left. If you look at the ancient Greek gods, they left one by one. The gods of the Bible left. Right? If they didn't leave, there wouldn't be a promise of their return. Oh, I'm promising you that I'm returned because I never left. Yeah, sure. 
That's crazy talk. The reason there, there's, you read about all the messianic figures and the godlike figures returning is because they're not here. The reason you call it a return is because you're not present. So if you know anything or anyone that's getting divine revelation, I'd like to know and show me proof of it because the gods are not here. Yes, they could do it telepathically and from a distance. But uh, I don't think you're that special, Jack. That's what I tell people when they say they have divine revelation. Because that's not the way the higher gods work. When the higher gods come and they give divine revelation, everybody knows. Or at least geographically, everybody knows. Yes, that's a very good point. Sounds very intuitive when it's expressed that way. Right, so when you're dealing with spiritual entities giving you revelation and they're of a lower class, ultimately we're made in a different way that we are promised to be higher than them. So why would you do that? Either way, there's, it's a terrible mix to discuss a religion and its history because the, it's like discussing uh, tennis and baseball. You know, two different sports almost. I mean, they're both sports, but completely different things. The reason anyone, uh, in other words, here, you can start a religion without ever writing anything down. Uh, you know, like a loose cult that would grow into whatever, right? It's very simple. Look at like American patriots. Not one of them know any of the laws or the Constitution. They just, they got everything from watching Superman comics and watching TV or some civics class, right? So you can start a religion without any holy writ you just you, it's by word of mouth oral right and you uh you put your you put everything in place that you need you know your houses of worship and your magistrates and your priests and your followers you, you can organize all that without a writ now imagine a religion set up that way and then go ahead and look at christianity that's exactly how it functions islam functions that way so does judaism it doesn't matter how much like, for example, in Judaism, they've already gotten away from the Tanakh or the Torah, and they do the Talmud and other things, right? Zohar or whatever. But they can't even, they can't even uh, rationalize that. They, can't, they just talk about little excerpts of it. They can't see it holistically. Indeed. No, as far as just creating an ad hoc religion, we saw that in the 2000s with the, what is it, religion of the flying spaghetti monster or whatever, that the new atheists just made up to poke fun at the Christians. It's not based on anything. Oh, you, you don't you don't need to poke fun at a Christian. Just put a mirror in front of him, or just record him and let him s just listen. I mean, they do. Uh, it's like, do you need to poke fun at a clown? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> but anyway. Yes, if one wants to be harsh, one could say it that way. Okay, so the the last thing that I'll touch on as it relates to the Quran is just what some scholars had to say about the older Arabic manuscript, which I thought was very interesting. Um, I can't validate any of it because I don't read Arabic, but it's worth taking note of because multiple people have pointed it out, which is that when you read the older stuff, the writing is barely readable. Um, I'm going to quote from what a German Quranic scholar called Jerd Puin said when the Yemeni government put him in charge of a restoration project for possibly the oldest Quranic text called the Sana'a. Um, it's from a 1999 article in the Atlantic called What is the Quran, which you can still read online. So, quote, my idea is that the Quran is a kind of cocktail of texts that were not at all understood even at the time of Muhammad. Many of them may even be a hundred years older than Islam itself. Even within the Islamic tradition, there is a huge body of contradictory information, including a significant Christian substrate. The Quran claims for itself that it's clear, but if you look at it, you will notice that every fifth sentence or so simply doesn't make sense. 
Many Muslims will tell you otherwise, of course, but the fact is that a fifth of the Quranic text is just incomprehensible. This is what has caused the traditional anxiety regarding translation. If the Quran is not comprehensible, even in Arabic, then it's not translatable. End quote. Which is very interesting. Yeah, that just supports the comment I made before. You don't need any of that. It, it would. Here's the thing. The, the way that humans are taught and the human society is set up, that if you had a, an adherent group, let's say adherent to the text, uh, they, they would only last maybe three quarters of a generation. Before they died, most of them would give it up. They said, oh, we, we don't need to live by that. It's just this interesting thing. I see that all the time. You see it in the corporate culture. You know, they have corporate rules working in a big company and very, you know, they always think about how to get around them or how to find quote unquote loopholes. So when you already have that mentality in the higher ups or the leaders of a religion, it's, you know, they don't have to say that they've deviated from anything understood or not understood. Again, it doesn't matter if it's understood or not, because the purpose of it was never to be any delivery of any revelation or anything anyway. You see, its mm. purpose was there because it's like, let's say you start a religion, right? We have a checklist. Okay, we need a text. Check. We need a priesthood. Check. We need a geography. Check. We need gullible people that we can convince, to be, uh, gullible people that want to think they want to be better people, and if they do this, they'll be better. Check. We need an enemy. Check. So if you have that checklist... You can make any, you can create a religion around anything, any concept, you know, even science, right? Science has all of that, by the way. And, and science doesn't follow their texts and quote unquote scientists. And then you have the, the enemy is the anti-scientific or the religious people. You, yeah, this is, there's an undercurrent. There is a spiritual, mental, very strong undercurrent that has been controlling the planet or the inhabitants. We're, Give you an example. I had a call yesterday with some people I haven't spoken to in a very long time, and uh, I said, "Look, get over it." There were many questions about what's happening, society, and the Earth, and all that. So get over it. This is a garden planet, and when you make it uh, a garden as big as covering most of the planet, and with full f flora and fauna, it you know, what what could you imagine going on? You're not going. To, it's not designed. It's not uh, put together to be a high tech you know, central race running the galaxy type thing. It's a garden. It's a garden planet. What do you know about making gardens, small and large? You have creatures, you have plants, and then then you have, okay, these bipedal, you know, hairless, you know, whatevers. And they think uh, they run the planet. Yes, they have more advantages for many reasons than all the other creatures in this garden. But do you expect it to be any more than just that? You'd be a fool, right? So it's a garden planet, and we just happen to be part of the flora and we're fauna. And we're unique and ill-prepared. You know, we're born naked, right, and hairless. We don't have claws, and our teeth are too small to defend. And what do you expect? It's so easy to come through, fly through here, and influence these morons. And that's what you're living under. And it's a garden. You're not living in some part of the galaxy that is uh, uh, set up, was set up to be anything special. It's Well, a garden, you know, by the way, people uh, take their gardens very seriously. If someone li li is of high net worth, let's say, wealthy, and they have a comfortable life, they take their gardens very seriously, by the way. 
but it's still a garden. It's not their living room. It's not their library. It's not, you see what I mean? It's a garden planet. So don't, ex whatever you expect from it, keep in mind that you're living in a garden and you're just one of the fauna. It's very simple. So again, so if you're looking at Islam and its history, uh, you, for example, you can go back in historical uh, texts and accounts all the way back till post-flood and find many accounts, even in the Bible and other places in history, that do parallel what's in the Quran and the way of life that's taught in Islam. Right? Very parallel. Uh, I like going forward. Mormons are the Muslims of North America. They're not Muslim, obviously, but it's almost identical. It's, it's scary how similar it is, right? How many wives can a Mormon have? Right? <laughs> how do they view their uh, right their place on the planet? How do they view non-Mormons? How do they? You see, the only thing is they don't really have food laws. That's because they're they're a hybrid of Christian. You know, they got the Christianity in there. Actually, they use the 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 um, Christian symbology as well. So they're not you know diametrically opposed like Islam is, but they are very much the same uh, formula. It's a formula, like for, Christianity has a formula, uh, modern Judaism has a formula, it's the Babylonian-based, right? The Christianity is a very lax formula, it pretty much takes everything in. Uh, there was a Saturday Night Live back in the 70s, uh, they were doing the juice blender, a parody commercial, you put anything in there, you know, you make it a, a nutritious juice, right? That's Christianity. Um, Islam retains some law. And a lot of dogma because it needs to have a stoic view uh, because it's there to, to protect the geography and culture of, of the people. Yes. And I think on that note, we'll take a look a bit at this connection between Islam and historically Christianity and Judaism. Because um, it's well known that the Quran contains references to more than 50 people and events found in the Bible. A number of scholars have also commented on how Muhammad was influenced by Jews and Christians. So... I want to start by quoting the Iranian scholar Al-Dashti, who wrote a book in the mid-70s called 23 Years About Islam. Um, so, quote, For those who consider the Quran to be a miracle because of its contents, the difficulty is rather that it contains nothing new in the sense of ideas not already expressed by others. All the moral precepts of the Quran are self-evident and generally acknowledged. The stories in it are taken in, in identical or slightly modified forms from the lore of the Jews and the Christians, whose rabbis and monks Muhammad had met and consulted on his journeys to Syria, end quote. Um, and I've also come across professors of Islamic history like Dr. Sami Aldib from Switzerland, who claim, similar to you, that the Quran was written by rabbis. What more can you say about that particular point, um, the rabbis' influence? Well, uh, let's say rabbis would be like a lawyer, and when you go into a partnership or an office, they don't do much. They have paralegals that do all the work like the scribes. So when you say it was written by rabbis, is it entirely correct? No, but it is a rabbinical school that did that. Yes, for sure. Not for sure, meaning that I, that there's any firsthand account or testimony to that, but you can just see it, right? Like, for example, uh, you can look at artifacts of any sort, non-written artifacts, you know, furniture, toys, uh, cars or whatever. And if you have a, a discerning mind, you could see what who made that right where it came from the origin right you can always see for example an italian sports car versus a german sports car versus an american sports car 
down to any detail, right? Yeah, I mean, you could show me one square foot of a car, a supercar, and I could tell you if it's an Italian supercar, an American supercar, or a German supercar, just from a small detail, because I, I know how to discern that. So if you know how to discern how things are written, uh, and uh, in other words, uh, you know how you have like iambic pentameter, which was popularized popularized by the ancient Greeks, to it, it has an effect. You know, you have limericks and other forms of um, grammatical tools, right? Literary tools. The literary tools that the rabbinical scholars used, meaning uh, dictates the way they outlined, and also um, the storyline and the ideology is 100% of Judean uh, influence, 100%. Um, now, the leeway that I give it there is that this is not some uh, nefarious conspiracy of some quote-unquote Jews to get together and write and create a new religion. Because if you go back and look at the Judeans and their extraction and the people of the Arabia because remember, the, the non-Arabs, the, the Persians, are also Islam now in, in, in mass, right? And it's not, their, it's not their native religion anyway. But if you, there is no conspiracy there. I, the, the only place I see Islam being conspiratorial is when it's, it's thrust into Asia and uh, Persia, right? Afghanistan, those, because those people are, are really nothing uh, to do with the direct lineage as uh, – the people of Arabia, uh, the southern part of Middle East, and the Judeans—they're—they're they're all extracted from Abraham. You see, um, so it, it's not nefarious in that sense for them to do it. Like there's a saying in New York: if you want a good lawyer, get a Jewish lawyer. What, is, what does that mean? You know. Um, so it—it's—it's a hundred percent natural and plausible that it was done that way, from any scholarly point. And it's evident once you understand. Yeah, one, one other way to see it is read the Quran and read the Talmud, the Babylonian Talmud, Sephardic, other Syrian Talmudic, other parts of the world Talmuds that were written. And, you know, if you, if you uh, the ideology, and even the way it's written, even though it's a different language, if you hold it up to the light, I mean, it's exactly the same, you know, source. And... Um, there are Arabic writings, by the way, much later, uh, uh, that include, like, if you study the history of algebra, uh, the medical sciences, and just general sciences, some alchemic texts, uh, these are things that uh, various mathematical models and scientific models that came from the Arabic world, right, that were, let's say, followed the dictate of the Arabic world are very dissimilar in the way they're written from what is written in the Quran. But if you look at, um, obviously, the biblical characters, but the way that, not the Bible itself, but Talmudic writing style, and let's say the Book of Enoch writing style, the Book of Jasher, the Book of Jubilees writing style, and the Quran, it's exactly the same writing style. But there are other Arabic writings, obviously, when you study algebra and medical practice. You see, you know, how many, even I remember in grade school, we were told uh, these particular sciences were attributed of Arabic origin, right? I mean, this is still commonly known. I think you've heard of it, right? Certain things came from Arabic culture that we use today in science, math, and other things, medical. And there are writings uh, that are still preserved from that. And it's very, very different than anything you'd find in an Islamic text. 
This is not a, a put down or a nefarious conspiracy. This is natural. This is not attacking or uh, trying to, uh, what is it called when you redo something, revise anything, because it's not going to be around in a decade anyway. Either it's Christianity or Judaism, as you know it, or any of it. So, in, in, again, just to, to <laughs> restate, this is an apropos time to discuss these things. And as far as the um, the Christian or the Jewish connection goes, we do have evidence that the Muhammad character had a history with the Jews and the Christian sects. He was familiar with the apocryphal stories of Christianity, whether from the Ebonite or other Christian sects. And obviously the Islamic version of the Christ and the Virgin Mary appear to be taken from infancy gospels of Thomas and, and James. Um, also, one of the earliest commentaries on the Quran was written by someone called Mukatil ibn Sulaiman in the 8th century. And he had an interesting quote. He said, Quote, the apostle used to sit at Al Marwa at the booth of a young Christian called Jabir, and they used to say, the one who teaches Muhammad most of what he brings is Jabir the Christian. Um, end quote. And so it does seem that Muhammad was partaking in these theological discussions of Judaism and Christianity, and Islam conveniently inserts itself into that by appropriating the material. Mm -hmm. Well, you, you have to realize that the the divine gods, the higher light gods, left of, I'd say, four or five hundred BC, and then they sent uh, the biblical Messiah of, uh, you know, two thousand years ago, four or five hundred years later, to do his dissertation, beginning dissertation on his graduate thesis, right? And then he left after he was killed, executed. So there's nothing left to do. There's, you're not going to, it's all, um, if you're getting anything, it's uh, oral history and study. There is no divine revelation since then. I hate to tell people that. It doesn't mean you can't get a spirit talking to you, but not the higher ones. No, they left a long time ago. So you're talking about most of the higher gods left 2,500 years ago, the highest god, and 500 years after that, we have the biblical Messiah doing his uh, graduate dissertation. And that's it. I mean, so the rest of it, have fun. You know, knock yourself out. Indeed. The last thing I want to touch on regarding the Semitic connection to Islam is this period of the Crusades that you mentioned, we briefly touched on earlier. The more popular revisionist work around this stuff was done in the 70s about Islamic history. And basically you had scholars at the time who came out and said that the accepted picture of Islam's origins wasn't based on actual 7th century documents, but rather on various narrative sources that were compiled decades afterwards and Muhammad was not perceived as the founder of a new religion at the time but rather like more like a preacher in the Old Testament tradition who talks about messianism similar to the Jews plus you have many of the documents that actually refer to the followers of Muhammad as quote-unquote children of Haggai and the tribe of Ishmael and that was their main identity as Arabs at the time not Islam which would have come later um, and since the Byzantine Empire was ruling over Jerusalem, the Arabs would have been in unison with the Jews, at least about invading and reclaiming their birthright by joining forces. And then later on, due to theological and political differences, they would have split apart in the Arabs forming Islam after the fact. So, yeah. Yeah. We're talking about hard times. Um, you see, there, well, there were hard times physically because of the natural disasters. Then you had hard times where you had traditions falling apart and culture falling apart just like you see it right now with the quote-unquote pandemic and all this other stuff right and by the way if anyone's listened to greek speak or other stuff before i've 
discussed everything that's happening and will be happening. So it, not because I'm, prof, you know, have any special knowledge or anything. It's just because I know how to discern information that works and information that doesn't. And hopefully others will also. Yes, and certainly this material will help with that. Okay, so to conclude this episode, I think we'd be negligent not to cover the current day situation in the Middle East and how that came to be. Obviously, the Ottoman Empire covered most of that region for a long time, until the 18th century, when France, Britain, Italy, and Russia conquered much of the territory, followed by the Levantine and Arabian te territories going to the Allies after World War I. Can you talk about the real reason behind the Western nations uh, fighting the Ottomans and finding them to be a problem, so much so that war was necessary to break up the empire? Well, that's World War I, yes. And it was also uh, Germany flexing its muscle, uh, which who didn't lose the war, by the way. World War One never really, there were no winners or losers. It just stopped because of the plague that the Americans brought over, right? So um, they were sensible enough to stop the war and take advantage of uh, breaking up the Austrian-Hungarian Empire, let's say, or the Kaiser and all that. And uh, the same, well, who was allied, by the way, with the Ottomans, right? So as far as my history that of that, my knowledge is yes they were i think uh allied so you look at the posthumous again and hypothetical presumption that germany lost world war one it makes it natural that we have to now turn our focus and beat up on the ottoman empire and break it up and give them ultimatums most of the harsh ultimatums that were given to the ottoman empire were done by the vatican jesuits right all your people have to take surnames you use a Romanized script and you uh, use our calendar or we'll wipe you out completely. So, and uh, it would have been easy for them to have mustered up favor because they had already committed the Armenian and Greek genocides and all of that. They were known to be extremely harsh and uh, they sort of retained the Bey's family, the B-E-Y-S. Those are like the sultans. They sort of retained enough of their wealth that they said, okay, we're not going to be eating out of garbage cans. Okay, let's break it up, you see. Um, so it's kind of like if you're going to break up Microsoft when Bill Gates was there, he says, well, I'm a billionaire, but make, at least keep me a hundred millionaire, right? I don't want to, right? So uh, have to shop at Walmart or something. And they agreed. And um, I would say that uh, most of the way the Middle East was carved up was done at least 50 years prior to that. The, the actual way it was done, I mean, you could research it. There's not direct, especially on the Internet, you're not going to find much direct information unless you really, really start digging, you know, under, you know, past the undertow. You know, you know when you go into something in an undertow and the water takes you in another direction – now the undertow is on the surface, so anything you try to research on the internet that's true, immediately you're shown the undertow, the stuff that carries you away. So just beware. That's why, for example, if you look at uh, the all of the countries in the Middle East have uh, red, white, and green flags. You ever notice that? Uh, they also have uh, British monarch, uh, British parliamentary type governments. They also have uh, the least favorable class of people ruling over them. They, in other words, uh, if you went back into the 19th century and you saw the 
history of the people that are the rulers in the Middle East now, the families and all that. Those were the people that everyone hated. And the reason you, you put such people in power is to maintain your power. Because if, they, uh, if you put a puppet government of people that are hated by their own people, the government could be ruthless at a drop of a hat. They, they will do anything to hold that power and be your puppet. Because if they go against you, then you feed them, you send them back to the people, and they never want to do that. So you have all of these traits, right, uh, that are basically um, the handiwork of uh, 19th century European colonialism and imperialism, but not from one particular empire. It's it was, everyone had their hand in, in structuring the Middle East in the 19th century, meaning the Germans, the French, and the British predominantly. The Americans had their hand in there as well, but the Americans were already – they were uh, on the other end of the stick also because you have 50 states to deal with and they, they fixed the Americans. They had the Americans squared away by the 1890s when um, – that's when they uh, uh, went from having England as an enemy to an ally where Germany was an ally and then became the enemy. So when you see the Americans switch from – uh, English being an enemy and Germans being an ally, switching it to English being an ally and Germans being an enemy, that's when the Americans were defeated, by the way, by the British again. I don't think I've ever discussed this. but So that colonial power was done with also. So that's pretty much what you've got. I mean, if you really want to know uh, more about it, you could research individually each country. Uh, like, for example, Jordan will be very adherent to English parliamentary style of rule, where if you go to Egypt, uh, let's say you get arrested in Egypt, they use Napoleonic law on you, right? I don't know if you're familiar with that. I know someone who was arrested in Egypt, and they use Napoleonic law on him. It's like, this is Napoleonic law here in Egypt, right? You see, you see the different variances. Um, how else would you explain uh, other than it's a post-imperial, post-colonial um, grouping. Not, not dissimilar to what a lot of the African countries, right, where you have the Dutch, the, Belg the Belgium uh, governments, uh, the English, French, right, went in there. And now there, there are still puppet governments there. Um, but, and most of their laws stem from uh, you German also influence, you see. What's going to be very unique about what's coming now and what's here, it's just that it's not evident, is um, a, a group of superpowers emerging in the Middle East with uh, southern Europe and parts of Africa as satellite powers. So this is already happening. It's just not, it, not, not evident yet. And it will be mostly in place in the next five years, which will be a unique perspective on uh, – on the times themselves because but not so unique because if you go back to the early days of of uh, known civilization where was the superpower base right middle east or that part of the world yes correct um i will be asking about that a bit shortly but just to go back to the um, current situation or at least the recent history in, in the middle east parts of arabia there were certain parts that didn't belong to the ottomans a large part was also controlled by the first Saudi state since the 1700s, which was founded by Ibn Saud. Eventually, his dynasty ends up ruling over all of Arabia. But 
What exactly is the story behind that dynasty and their role not only in promoting Wahhabism today, but just seeming to be tied to the West in this almost interdependent way? I would say, again, it's all English. They would not have been able to do anything without the gunpowder and the politics of the British or that European influence. They had a very poor reputation. Well, even today they do. But, you know, by the way, uh, have you seen there was an article recently uh, public uh, from the government there and they said we are no longer an oil producing nation, but it didn't make the mainstream news. Are you are you familiar with it? Maybe you can research it. I did come across that. So what are they what are they doing then? I don't think they're running heroin on camels, are they? So what are they up to? Think about it. Well, in context of, you know, the future superpowers, how, how are they a superpower, right? How are they going to become a superpower? I, I don't think they ever will intuitively. You know what I mean? Because they're not going to get a global respect uh, as such. But other countries north of them would. Give hmm. me an example. If you dress the way they do, they can't even get on a bicycle. They'll go five feet and they'll get caught in the chain and they'll fly head over uh, handlebars, bust their chin open on the sidewalk. You see, you see the metaphor? Yes, I do see that. Yeah, yeah. They would have to abandon that at the very least. Yeah, yeah. And they will eventually, but, you know, yeah. It's it's just uh, uh, what it is. Uh, it's It's pretty sad. It's a garden planet, dude. And they're definitely not smelling like roses, I'll tell you that. But it seems as if they also have a very interesting relationship with the U.S. as far as ties to them that seem almost counterintuitive. Yeah, World War II, uh, FDR did that. They ran out of oil here. Uh, I think the U.S. now is the largest oil-producing nation. Uh, In other words, it jockeys between place number one and two for the world, but you don't hear about that anymore. Or now. I think it's mostly in the region of Montana, like Montana can, and in parts of uh, that world, you know, Colorado can provide the entire world all the petroleum, and they are. You know, there's a lot of it coming out of Venezuela and other places. But, um, you know, I, I don't see any significance with the Wahhabi uh, other than being a distraction. They're not, they're, they're not in there. If they're in there prophetically and what's coming, they're going to be a satellite, not any more important than the Greeks or the Turks, let's say. It doesn't matter how many gold-plated Lamborghinis they have in their parking lot, you know. No, that I understand. Iran is another Muslim nation with its own non-Ottoman history, so they were never conquered by the Turks, um, became a Muslim right. state. And they're, not, and they're not Arabic. That as well. Um, right. They're the same bloodline as the people in Afghanistan and parts of India. Right. We obviously don't have time to cover the, the history, but if we focus on the Iranian Revolution, you have Reza Khan, the military leader who became Shah after the 1921 coup. He was backed by the U.S. and Britain. His son Mohammed takes over after World War II, also backed by the West. They put in place programs to westernize the country. Eventually, Mossadegh becomes prime minister, butts heads with the Western agenda, allegedly because he wants to nationalize the oil industry, among other things. So the CIA have been re- removed via coup. And Mohammad Reza is able to rule more firmly as the Shah. Eventually, he also loses power thanks to the 1979 revolution, um, which is sort of cast as a pro-Western authoritarian monarchy being replaced with an anti-Western Islamic theocracy. 
Um, what do you know about those events and, and why were the it's, Islamists able to remove the monarchy? Well, the thing was to redo the Middle East and you, you redo something by having a crisis. Uh, you know, if it's too, if you want to change the way your house looks or a house that you have, let's say a vacation house, and it's too expensive to do uh, and too much work to redo, you just burn it down, make sure you have enough insurance. That's the way it works, you know. Uh, like, for example, the in 2002, the NATO, the North Atlantic Terrorist Organization, I'm sorry, North Atlantic Treaty Organization, uh, put out a report that 9-11 was insurance fraud, not terrorism. And then they erased that, right? So that's all it is, just an insurance game. So you want an, you want to have an enemy. So there was a period where they they did let it happen, but then they took control of it. There, the Ayatollah that first was part of the uh, Iranian Revolution was uh, sort of adherent and, and more lawful, and then they got subverted again. Right? No different than. Khrushchev, you know, uh, was in the middle of the communist era, 1952. He was in the UN saying that Soviet Union is no longer communist, 1952, you see. So what was he saying? We're, we're finished with that. We're going to join the rest of the world, but we have to say we are a certain way because we need to have that, that uh, di bipolar, you know, black and white, good and bad, right? So the people... In Iran, say the West is bad and the people in the West say Iran is bad, that's good for business. So, and it doesn't make any sense. Uh, it, when, you, when, when you live in a country like Iran, the way it is now and the way it has been for the past, you know, whatever, 30, 40 years, it doesn't make any sense at all, right? Uh, same with Russia. Oh, fortunately, they opened – Russia was redone. Uh, the Soviet Union just fell because the IMF says, well, your money's no good anymore. Very simple. It's that they're going to do that to the U.S. also. Uh, but too many countries are pinned to the U.S. dollar, so they have to figure out how they're going to deal with that cascade. But uh, I think the people of um, of Persia or Iran are, are going to play a major, major, major role in what's coming in the next few years. Uh, obviously, their their government's going to change. It's, it's not going to last very long. And when I say superpower in the Middle East, they are going to be one of them. And I've gone out on a limb and said this many times, I'm quite confident to say it again, is that what you call Iran or Persia is going to be very close allies with modern-day Israel. I know it doesn't seem that way, but I know someone in Tokyo, the, the other than the Yakuza, the largest uh, underworld body uh, in Tokyo is the Persian Iranian mafia and the Israeli mafia from the Mossad, and they're best friends. So, if the underworld uh, intelligence agencies and the you know the black market people uh, are the best friends are Persians and Israelis, that's going to bubble to the surface soon. You see. So they're, you know, they, the, the best thing for marketing uh, the old culture of the planet is for Israel to threaten Iran for, with war and, and Iran to threaten Israel with war, Where, while those who control both of those countries in the back uh, know that they're best of friends, right? And that will surface, that will come to a surface as well. Because no matter how much um, 
let's say, shift over to Israel for a moment. Difference there is between the Arab world and Israel. You know, if you remember the uh, the narrative in the 70s, oh, we're going to, all the Arab nations, we're going to push Israel out into the ocean, right? Onto the sea was what, one of the most common narratives, right? Um, for all of that, considered the Persians are not Arabs. So just keep that in your hat. So when Israel starts to make major alliances, even though they are now, like, for example, there are a lot of countries in in uh, Middle East that are opening airport flights back and forth to Israel in the past year that never have before would have considered it. I think there's over three or four countries now that were banning flights from Israel in the Middle East. Keep in mind, those are still Arabic countries where Persian uh, Persia or modern day Iran is not. So it would be super easy for them to join based on that old narrative that the Arab countries wanted to push Israel into the sea. Not just solely, but I'm just saying. So keep these things in mind. And because when these things start happening, it's not going to make any sense. But if you know it's going to happen, it makes lots of sense, you know. Indeed. That's very interesting. Well, wrapping up, I mean... A lot has been said about the growth of radical Islam in the last four decades, whether it's U.S.-backed Mujahideen forces in the Soviet-Afghan war in the 80s, Al-Qaeda in the 90s, Muslim Brotherhood in the 2000s, or ISIS most recently, who seem to be oddly vanishing and reappearing in the last four years. Um, what do you know about you know, the origins of these radical Islamist movements, particularly recently, and what their ties are to sort of government conspiracies, so to speak? Sure. Well, it's a, it's more than a conspiracy. It's a constructive reality. A lot of people talk about the CIA backing them up, which is true, but uh, this it's the State Department that flips the bill. So when ISIS shows up with 2,000 brand new Toyotas made in Texas because they have the larger radiators, which do better in desert environments, people uh, queried Toyota, why does ISIS have all these new trucks? And I'm like, well, I don't know. Ask the U.S. State Department. They're the ones that ordered it. Now, of course, most people don't know this, but the CIA has its own satellites in space. It has its own spy planes. It has even has its own attack carrier group. Most people don't know that, right? Uh, maybe you can fathom that they have uh, satellites and other and spy planes, but most people don't know they have their own aircraft carrier group. It's not talked about, but it exists. Uh, they still have the state, the U.S. State Department, flip the bill. So. It's just a proxy army, just like it's good for business, you know. It's no big deal. I mean, I was showing someone, uh, just bought a used car, just a segue here for a second. Volkswagen uh, put out a uh, two-passenger, I mean a two-door uh, car that gets 248 miles per gallon and back in 2014. They only made 250 of them. Those would have been, and of course, because they only made 250 of them, they cost about 100 grand. Uh, and they never went into production. Well, the CEO got, you know, a few phone calls and he's not to do it at all. He just made 250. I think he suffered a stroke or something, you know, very easy to do. Uh, so it's the same, same stuff, man. You know, we should all be driving cars that get 250 miles per gallon or, uh, you know, 120 uh, 100, let's say 200, 150 uh, kilometers per liter. That's a that would be the standard. But why isn't that happening? You see, because it's bad for business. 
not because you're not going to be burning oil, but because now you can travel much cheaply, and the whole thing is to not travel. So how many times have you ever heard of a State Department warning not to travel to this country because of terrorism? Right. I, I read that stuff. Like, for example, like with this, the pandemic of 2020, I didn't care what the media was saying. I went to the federal registry. Every government has its own registry that it puts out every month or every few weeks on, you know, its policies and business. I didn't see much mentioned in there about any kind of pandemic. It just said COVID-19 and associated and related other related things. Like what? Uh, maybe we all have to get a digital ID and digital currency like that's related. So you don't look at the media. Every government has its own registry, federal registry. You go read that. So, yeah, that, that whole thing is um, I heard a lot ISIS stop fighting. A lot of them did because they got stimulus checks from the U.S. Treasury, too. You know, it's true. Yeah, apparently you can buy anything, including peace. Well, we're not made. Uh, it's a garden planet, but we're not. I think I gave the metaphor where, um, let's say, uh, one day everyone wakes up on the planet and they see these huge Independence Day style UFO motherships in the sky. And everyone gets scared. All the governments capitulate into the fear and say, let's make world peace. And after the world peace is formed, all the motherships open up and kill everyone on Earth. And there's a few survivors, and the, one of the survivors asks, why did you kill us? And he says, well, we created you to be a warlike race to take you out here into the universe to help us fight our wars. But since you wanted peace, we don't need you anymore. So they destroyed you. How difficult is that to understand? The, the Klingons and the Romulans in Star Trek. Actually, when you watch the Star Trek, the humans in the Federation are the we're not when you look at these other races those other race, races are metaphors of human society not the humans everyone thinks we're uh, they look at the humans in star trek as being the humans no that humans are some idealistic race not us we are like there was one old star trek where the the race war the slave uh, uh two guys the guy who played the riddler and the batman he was uh, they're white on one side and black on the other side and one wants to kill the other, one enslave the other. And he says, well, you're both the same. And he says, no, we're not. I'm white on the left and black on the right. He's black on the left and white on the right. You remember that episode? Just to show how ridiculous it was. That, that's, so every time you see a, a race in Star Trek, that is an aspect of the human race here now. And the actual humans in Star Trek are some idealistic golden age uh, fictional thing that many aspire to i don't think i've ever discussed the greek commentary on star trek but there you go no very interesting so yeah i think as a very last question i'll you know you've already touched on what the future holds for that region um obviously they can't continue in a religious delusion forever can you talk about the actual machinations that will take place to resolve the tensions there yeah the easiest way to resolve tensions is with crisis and uh, the promise of um, a better life. That's all. So what you're going to see in the Middle East is the formation, for example, of um, not necessarily because it is going to be a world center. It won't flush out the Western influence. It's actually going to invite it in. 
but one of the the, the, the let's say how do you call it a, a road marker you know when you're traveling on the highway it tells you five miles ahead to the next exit about a mile away from the exit you know you're gonna the exit that brings you to the new world order being in the middle east um would be a civil war in uh what you what's called iraq al-iraq uh a civil war it would be uh, very mild um in, in other words it won't be like any of the wars that you've seen there recently and it will split the country in half uh politically and culturally not just politically culturally meaning the northern part of the country north uh western part of the of iraq will become uh, the new assyria and when that happens it's also going to take land from turkey and uh, modern day syria as well and i've explained over a decade ago that you're going to have wars in syria and places like that because that to soften them up because of this reason and then you had the wars in syria starting in 2014 right so you will see a mild civil war as such you're going to see the uh, the unification of iran from uh, right now iran has persia has two governments uh, iran has two governments they have the religious side and the administrative secular side right they're going to unify uh, they're also going to unify with the Medes, uh, which are the um, the people that they, they think they're the modern um, – they live across Iraq. Oh, man, uh, Kurdish people. They're going to unify because they're really Persian, um, even though they have a slightly different language. Uh, the, the Kurdish people think they have about 27 different states spread out. and They're considered to be radical terrorists by the Turks, you know, the PKK or something. So that, that will happen there. Israel uh, is going to purge uh, Palestinian jurisdictions out of uh, the main uh, West Bank and uh, Gaza will expand. It will become much larger than it is now and it will become a, a state and also ally of Israel. Uh, so these are things you're going to see unification uh, of, of um, Cyprus and Turkey. Right now Cyprus is split in half. They're going to work with the Turks. Greece is going to work with the Turks uh, very closely, um, and they're going to be satellite nations. Uh, further on, you'll have um, uh, another uh, another civil war type, political civil war in Israel, where they will put a more spiritual uh, government in there. Instead of these labor party or this, that, or the other, it'll be... Um, going towards more of a quote-unquote religious but not orthodox religious like you see now uh as, as like in jerusalem is ruled by let's say orthodox jewish but it won't be jewish it'll be more towards the older judean principle and that civil war in israel is going to be a political one and it will uh, stress the significance of having a monarch instead of just a prime minister and a president by the way, wherever you see a government that has a prime minister, that's their head judge. A minister is a judge. They also have a president. Israel has a president also because that's who signs the uh, executive order for the administration. So that's what you're going to see coming in the Middle East uh, in the next five years. I would say the mile marker that or kilometer marker that lets you know this is going to be happening would be the, the, the second or first thing that I mentioned, which was a civil war in Iraq. That's going to yield a uh, uh, a country, a new country in the Middle East, uh, a new Assyria, I call it. And there are plenty of Assyrians to uh, go back home. They haven't been there as a country in 2,500 years, I'd say.
So there you go, in a nutshell. And there's a lot more detail I can get into, uh, uh, but I think those are – that's a thousand times more than you'll hear anywhere else, I should say, about what's coming. Yeah, and I don't give dates, but I know the times because the dates are fictional. I think I've gone over the fictional calendar, and I don't say that the January through December, Monday through Friday is fictional, Monday through Sunday or whatever is fictional. They say it. The people that provide it to you say it's fictional. What better, you know, like, for example, when you talk about attorneys, you know, uh, they based, uh, you know, they say, oh, yeah, we're respectful and we do justice. And I was like, what are you talking about, dude? It's fiction. Your whole thing is based on fiction. And internally, publicly, the attorneys defend like they're on some noble quest, right? But if you look at, if you speak to them individually and show them their documentation, everything is a fiction. Look up legal fiction. For Even on the basic Google search, it tells you legal fiction is that something that everyone knows is false, but it's presumed to be le legitimate legally or to be litigated on, right? Like if you're arrested for, you know, charged with stealing rocks from the moon. That's why if you look at people that are in federal prison, 70% are in prison on conspiracy charges. It's like, what's, it's in totally intangible. It's all based on plea bargaining. So in the future also, you won't have any attorneys and you won't have allopathic doctors either, fortunately. For example, the medicine that you have has nothing to do with health. It's allopathic. Look up allopathic medicine or allopathy, A-L-L-O-P-A-T-H-Y. It has to do with offering um, some kind of treatment that reverses symptoms. It has nothing to do with health. None of that will be around in the future, fortunately. You cannot, you cannot move forward with these types of religions, science, medicine, and law that you have. You're stuck. This is it. You're, you're finished. This is the end of it. And if uh, if it wasn't the end of it, uh, everyone should go into a panic and make sure that it is because you cannot move forward in a positive direction with all of the systems in place. It, it doesn't matter. It's not political. Right. It's every part of your culture is uh, effed up big time. But here's the thing. You don't have to do anything. Uh, and even if you try to do anything, you would be stopped by the forces that are in control now and by the divine forces. The divine forces are going to be sending a mop-up crew. Right. So so it's, a, it's still a long and arduous road. Yes. And we will be looking at some of those details more closely in subsequent episodes. But, yeah, I think that we've covered quite a lot of ground. And we should be able to wrap up on, on that note. Yes. And in conclusion, um, I do consider Islam to be one of the more noble religions, if not one of the most noble, because uh, simply not because I'm an adherent or believer, um, but because they have uh, rules and laws that can be beneficial, where the Christians have no rules. The Judeans, shame on them, or the Jewish people, they do have rules, but shame on them, uh, they're convoluted and uh, are not biblical. But at least they have rules too. Well, I think, okay. I think that uh, brings our conversation to an end. We'll be continuing in uh, subsequent episodes, wrapping up probably by looking at the Buddhist and uh, Hindu religious leanings and see what we can extract from those. Thank you, Greek, for today. Uh, hey, you're welcome. I think we had a good talk, and uh, thank you to the listeners for tuning in, and we will catch you at the next episode.